So uh, to this evening, today, we are going to be looking again at Hosea, um, and this time we'll be looking at the rest of the chapter. If you remember the last time, we, uh, we focused only on the first three verses, which was centered on the, the prophet's marriage and uh, some, of the, uh, some of the struggles with that. And today we'll be dealing with the rest of the chapter. So we have a couple of uh, scriptural passages to read from. The first one will be from Hosea, of course. And even though the text will be primarily from uh, Hosea uh, 1 to 4, we will be reading the entire first chapter of Hosea. And then uh, we'll be reading uh, uh, from the New Testament, Hebrews 10. 31, uh, 21, uh, I'm sorry, 26 to 31. So um, let's look at that now. I, I am, I, uh, the last time when I read uh, from this passage, I, I simply used what we normally use in our pews, which was uh, um, the new uh, the American Standard Version. And this time I went back to using the New American Standard Bible, uh, the 1995 uh, edition. And uh, it just certain things the way they stated it here aligned very well to the studies that I did. It, 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 it doesn't, it's just a difference in terms of uh, the way the translation was rendered that uh, is much more with the way in which the study was developed. So I stuck with it, but not entirely, and, and when we go through it to the extent that I uh, recollect that, I will point that out. So let's look at Hosea uh, chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 1, and reading through the chapter. Hear the word of God. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea the son of Beri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaken the Lord. So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Deplem. And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lord Rahama, uh, no mercy. And this is where I wanted it to bring that out, the using the Hebrew rendition. And then we can we then put in parentheses, no mercy, because that's what it means. Lord Rahama, no mercy. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, 
and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Then she, when she had weaned Lo Rohama, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Amin. Again, that is one place where they have the Hebrew name there, which means, and I have this in parentheses, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Then verse 10 to the rest of the chapter. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. And then the, uh, the reading from the New Testament is uh, Hebrews 10, 6 to 31. And I left that in the English Standard Version. Hebrews 10, 26. I think, I hope I said that. 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy for the evidence of two or three witnesses. Die with us. Let me read that again. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we, now that we've read that, I think it might be, uh, be a good idea to, uh, to pray before we go into the sermon. So let us pray. Father, we, we come humbly before you this day and we ask you that for myself who proclaim this word and for the audience that listen, whether they are here in person or on the, uh, uh, on the screen, oh God, at home, watching this, we pray, oh Lord, that you might be here with us and cause that to be a change in our hearts, uh, that together we might bring to you praise and grow taller, stronger, greater, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we also pray, God, those who hear that may not know you, whether they are washing or in person, that through this proclamation of your word, you will uh, bring them to yourself to know you as their, personal, as, as their personal Lord and Savior. Hear now, God, our prayers, 
In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Um, so we are, we, uh, the title, of course, is uh, of judgment. A bit of an introduction here, just some uh, review. So the, from the last uh, sermon, uh, when I presented this, like I said, this is what is going on is that we are developing a, a series, and hopefully we can complete the book of uh, Hosea whenever that happens. But just to give you a review, we wouldn't, we're not going to do this review every time, but this, uh, because it's the one chapter and it's so crucial to understand, we're going to do the review again. So we noted the last time that Hosea is considered the most comprehensive of the minor prophets. And we noted too that minor here means that their literary production was shorter than the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So it's not, it's not that they're giving us a minor truth. It's just that the literary production was not as much as the major prophets, but it's the same truth that we're getting. And that the name Hosea means help, deliverance, and salvation. That Hosea begins uh, his prophetic ministry during the reign of Jeroboam the second. Sorry, because there is a, and we will deal with that a little bit, there is an earlier king. Just as the monarchy splits, the first person to head up the uh, ten tribes is referred to or called by the name of Jeroboam. And now we have another Jeroboam the second here. So this is when uh, the prophet Hosea is working during the, uh, the reign of Jeroboam the second of Israel in the north. And uh, also from the kings in the south, you have Uzziah uh, to Hezekiah of Judah in the south. That's the call that kingdom, Judah. That Hosea had a very long prophetic ministry, at least uh, 30 years. Maybe there's been some argument that it may have been even more than that, but at least 30 years, that's a, that's a, that's a reasonable career, uh, even in our time, 30 years. In the 8th century B.C., from about uh, 782 to 753 BC. His ministry was focused uh, mostly on the 10 tribes of Israel. There are, you will see it, repeated allusions to Judah, but this was a prophet mostly focused on the north, the 10 tribes in the north. Um, Hosea, like Jeremiah, was a remarkably sensitive man with a deep inner life and a deep fellowship with God. And it's not that we know all kinds of details about his life, but from the prophecy, even the pageant that we see display, we can discern that this was a remarkably sensitive man. It reminds me of a Chinese thinker, an ancient Chinese thinker that said that and I think some writers here in the audience may agree with that, that through the documents that a person produces, you can, you can pretty much figure out that life. I know some modern writers can always say that, they'd say that uh, I write something and it's distance from me. I, I, that's, that's not me, but that's not quite true. It's always reflective of them, and whether they like it or not. And so we pick that up through the... Uh, the writing of the prophet to see that he, he has a 
a very sensitive, tender heart, uh, like what we see in Jeremiah, that uh, the weeping prophet is sort of something similar. We come now look at the times of Hosea, and I think you remember from the last time sort of uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce kind of squatched this down when he said that um, he used uh, Dickens' uh, literary characterization of the 18th century when Dickens, the great uh, English author, wrote that it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. So we're going to flush that out a little bit more. So what we have here is that Israel uh, in the north, the kingdom of the twelve or ten tribes led by King Jeroboam II uh, to a successful position of great earthly power. So that's he, under his leadership, you have Israel attaining to great earthly power. And some of the, rightly so, the scholars see, sees this as the last display of divine grace. Uh, some have written that his reign of 41 years was the last prosperous that Israel had ever, the most rather, his reign of 41 years was the most prosperous that Israel had ever known as yet. Of course, this is not comparing it with the reign of Solomon. This is comparing it with Israel, that is the ten tribes itself. This was one of the, when they broke away, called the northern kingdom Israel. And so the comparison is with itself. And so with itself, this was a fairly uh, successful time uh, uh, that they have known as yet. The Lord God had given them grace to bring them to himself through repentance from Jeroboam, the son of Nadab. So we say Nadab is the, the first breakaway king of the northern kingdom. And so in this uh, great blessing that God had blessed them with, what he's given them an opportunity for them to repent, to come back uh, to him from Jeroboam, the son of Nadab, who had made Israel sin. If you go through the text, he said of the kings, that is how he's always referred to, had made Israel sin. He has set up golden calves at Bethel and Dan as symbols of Yahweh to be worshipped. But this was a transgression of the fundamental law of the covenant. It really marked a formal departure from the worship of the true God. It's almost like in spite of all the teachings, Jeroboam went in a different direction. Jeroboam, the son of Nadab, Nebat, also expelled the Levites from his realm and set up for himself uh, and the people a priesthood of his own making. That tells you how deviant he had become, transgressive almost. The prophet Hosea is contending with both an outward and an inward apostasy from the Lord. So these are all external things, but these things reflect really internal uh, degradation that has happened in Israel. That Israel in the north, the kingdom of the ten tribes, had breached the fundamental law of the covenant and so constituted an illegitimate order. So when we, when that statement is made is that there is no king of the northern kingdom that is legitimate. That is what, that has been, uh, that is what we should understand. That for the prophets and all the godly people, there is no king in the north that come about. 
that, that is ever legitimate. And in some respect, that's why they probably lived the way they did. As one scholar has put it, make sure we get everything. <clears throat> Yes, as one scholar uh, uh, put it in describing what had happened to Israel, he says here, unfaithfulness towards God and his word begot faithlessness towards men. Hence, all bounds of love, of chastity, and of order were loosened and broken. And this is the close of the quote now, new words from me. The northern kingdom held within itself the seed of self-destruction, founded as it was in rebellion and revolution against the royal house of David. But it's not so important that that is the royal house of David. What is important is that house being divinely appointed. And so the rebellion does not amount to much. The holy prophet Hosea was a witness against Israel's apostasy. It is in this night, that darkness, that deviant transgressive behavior, that he was called to a profound witness to the holiness of God's love and the anguish of that love at the, at the uh, unfaithfulness of Israel. Hosea wrote his prophecies as a witness. And this is a quotation from another scholar. Hosea wrote his prophecies as a witness of the Lord against a degenerate nation. So previously, we had dealt with Hosea uh, 1 to 3, Hosea chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 3. Uh, about the prophet's heart, heart calling wherein he was commanded by God to uh, contract a marriage with the harlot uh, Goma, and that this marriage to the prostitute Goma would be a symbol to all Israel of Israel's apostasy and faithlessness. That this marriage would be an enacted parable, so it's not just a story of vision. The holy prophet lived this out, an enacted parable, a real-life pageant, a symbol of the profound and great reality of the unfathomable depth of the love of God. The, the way he lived it, and you really would think about it, uh, that kind of love has a mystery about it that we, we, I don't know whether we can ever do justice in terms of the way we articulate it. Today we have before us the other two sections of this chapter of Hosea, Hosea and Gomer's children, verses 4 to 9, and then the prophecy of restoration, verses uh, 10 to 11. So now going into our first section, uh, Hosea and Gomer's children, verses uh, 4 to 9. Hosea, Hosea gives his children dreadful names. These are, these are dreadful names to name one, one's kids. But these names 
may be quickly changed in the context of hope, as we will see as we develop uh, the sermon here. Hosea's children, the fruit of his marriage, and some of the uh, commentators have referred to it as the evil fruit of his marriage. As the marriage itself, while being real life issues, are also signs and symbols to an adulterous nation. The names of the children are prophetic of what would happen to Israel because of her unfaithfulness to God. Hosea's and Gomer's firstborn is a man-child. According to verse 4, God intervened to have this child named Jezreel. The name means God's source or plant. And in the context, in this context, it may be understood as scattered also. So even though it means God's souls or plant, I, uh, the general consensus is that the other meaning of it being scattered is how we must understand it right now in this context as uh, uh, scattered. Given the context, as I said before, of the passage, the name here is obviously being used as a form of judgment. That the house of Jehu, of the line of Jeroboam II, will be destroyed, and that the northern kingdom of Israel will be destroyed and be scattered among the nations. So that uh, this is a bit of a history of the Old Testament in some respect. Uh, We uh, we won't go into details of it, but essentially Jehu was sent to exterminate the house of Ahab. And uh, so the, the reason why he's been judged here because in some respect, you look back at it and you say, um, but he was told to do that. And we'll, we'll get to that and see that. So Jehu, uh, in executing design, divine judgment upon the house of Ahab, abused his writ. He abused his writ and used it as a mere cloak for the loss of his own evil heart, in that he never did destroy the golden calves at Bethel than Dan. So he was supposed to destroy Ahab and sort of restore the kingdom and do all those things that will push the country toward righteousness, but he didn't. So he abused his writ. So that we may rightly say that the massacre executed against the house of Ahab for all his wickedness was a crime of Jehu, though it be still the righteous vengeance of God. It has been said that with the overthrow of the house of Jehu, we have here the beginning of the end, the commencements of the process of decomposition of the kingdom of the ten tribes. And going on to verse 5, the Lord will break the bow of Israel, that is Israel's whole military force, a symbol of her strength, the Lord will destroy and disperse amongst the nations. And in verse 6, Gomer, Gomer again conceives, and this time she gives birth to a daughter. The Lord again instructs that the child be named Lo-Rohama, meaning not love, or not pitied, 
or not favored. For child, she's already cursed to begin with. In this verse, God rejects the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. The daughter here may be symbolic of the totality of the rejection of the kingdom. That is, the rejection is not restricted to the men of the northern kingdom, but it also but is inclusive of the women, that the sins of the whole people will know no mercy from God. The Lord God, because of the stubbornness of the hearts of the people, has abandoned them to the folly and the darkness of their sins. In verse 7, not so for Judah, though. This is where I said the repeated allusions to Judah. This is one of those allusions. What has happened to the 10th tribe, the, the 10th northern tribe, uh, in verse 7, the prophet affirms that this will not be the case for Judah. Whereas God's mercy is taken from Israel in the north, it continues to abide with Judah in the south. Whereas God is no longer the God of Israel in the north, he is still the God of Israel in the south. Whereas the Lord has dissolved his covenant with adulterous, unfaithful Israel in the north, the covenant with Judah in the south still holds. God will only help those who acknowledge and worship him as their God. He will not help those who do not. In verse 8, Gomer brings a third child into the world, and again it is a son, a second son. Verse 9, the Lord named him Loamin, meaning not my people. Strengthening the judgment and condemnation of the north, the Lord seals their fate by expressly rejecting them as his people. They are now a part of the Gentile, unbelieving, faithless world. They no longer, they are no longer the people of God. And he is not their God. He knows them no more. That's a sad place to be. Um, one little aside note is that going through this and this abandonment that occur, the general thinking of the scholars, and I think everybody is right, uh, the scholars, that is to say, this kind of rejection that happened to Israel, it will never happen in the Christian church. And somebody can correct me here afterwards, but I think I've read that and said that uh, that will not happen with the Christian church, and likely because it is so tied with the person of Christ. So we come now to the second uh, part, the prophecy of restoration. That should not comfort us, though, uh, too much, uh, and, th and think that we can do anything foolish and nothing like that will happen. Um, I guess every time I see what happened to the Byzantium Empire and the fall of Constantinople, if you read the history, I'm always really sad by that. And I think that is a warning. That, to me, that should be a warning to every one of us. That was Christian lands. They did have Christian services and all of that in that place. And I think they thought that they could not fall because of those commitments. 
and in fact they did. And so we now the faith did not come to an end. It went someplace else, to Western Europe and other parts of the world. But we ourselves, where we are here in the United States and in the Western world, need to keep that in mind, that, uh, that these things can, in fact, uh, still happen. So the church, the, the gates of Hades, will never prevail over it eventually. So the prophecy of restoration, and that's where we, we're getting now with the prophecy of restoration in verses uh, 10 and 11. But no human wickedness can prevail over the unfathomable depth of the love of God. God's stillness is stronger than the tumult of the human crimes. And his desire for peace is stronger than man's passion for violence. Men and women's passion for violence. God's desire for peace is stronger than that. And so the prophet Hosea announces that there is yet salvation and restoration for those who would but turn to God. We have here a most delightful turn of events. The story that begins in disobedience and judgment is now one of obedience and compassion. And Jezreel, that men scattered in the context of judgment, must now be understood as meaning to plant a God's source. A name change occurs in this context of restoration and salvation. So, excuse me, a name change occurs for the better, rather, in that Lorahama, not love, or not favor, becomes in this context of restoration and salvation, loved and favor. Lo amin, meaning um, not my people, now becomes my people, with the declaration that you are the sons of the living God, as, oppo as opposed to the followers of dead idols that Israel had foolishly made for itself, leading to its death and destruction. The prophecy is that Israel would come again into a right relationship with her God and attain the gold of a divine calling. According to the New Testament, this prophecy is fulfilled in the time of the Messiah in our Lord Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter 1, 1 says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. And then 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. We actually read this this morning in our Sabbath school uh, class. But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Romans 9, 25 to 26, another one enforcing that. Uh, St. Paul says there, 
as he also says in Hosea, he quotes directly there, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So in terms of the analysis of this text, this brings us to a close of our analysis here. So in terms of uh, summary, what would be our summary text here? What is the, the I think verse 10 is uh, the summary. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. What is our commitment and application? What do we do with this text? Uh, Jeremiah 2.19 says there, your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will punish you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to abandon the Lord your God. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to abandon the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, declared the Lord God of hosts. A commentator said, Whoever forsakes the living God will fall into destruction and cannot depend on God's mercy in time of need. Read that again. Whoever forsakes the living God will fall into destruction and cannot depend on God's mercy in time of need. There can be no success, and this is my own words here now, there can be no success apart from God. Outside of God, our dreams will be scattered in our faces. There is no hope outside of God. And then Galatians uh, 6, uh, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. Though God be a God of rigor and judgment, he's clearly that. That's part of uh, his attribute, a God of rigor and judgment. God is also a God of compassion, mercy, and love and kindness. Today, God calls all unbelieving persons to flee his wrath and come and know his great love in Jesus Christ, that love that knows no necessity, no boundaries, to flourish and to grow. I think this is a message not only for those who are unbelieving, but for us who are in the faith, and are struggling and stumbling and growing, this is also that message that God loves, beckons us to come to him, to know that love that knows no necessity, no boundaries for us to flourish and to grow.